You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc. I'm here today with uh, Charles Foster, who is a fellow at Exeter College at Oxford University, and also a writer, <laughs> a veterinarian, a lawyer, I mean, a whole bunch of different things. I don't. I have no idea if they have departments at Exeter College, and if they do, I have no idea what department they would put you into. But you've also written a bunch of books. The two I think we'll focus on today are one called Being a Beast, and the other one called Being a Human. But you just have a new book out called Cry of the Wild. You've got one called The Screaming Sky in the Hot Unconscious, Choosing Life, Choosing Death. You've got a novel even called Little Brown Sea, and then this little book on medical law. Welcome, Charles. It's good to be with you, Greg. Thank you. So maybe I should ask, do you consider yourself an evolutionary biologist, a theologist, a veterinarian, a barrister? I mean, this is one of the more wide-ranging background stories that I've encountered in this series of podcasts that I do. I think in many ways you're emblematic of what I'm trying to achieve with this podcast. I consider myself an extremely fortunate and curious human being, and I'm anxious to know what sort of creatures human beings are. And I've examined that question through a number of lenses, which life has kindly handed me over the years. But I think that all these books are about the same quest. I'm trying to find out what sort of creature humans are. So I'm attached to the Faculty of Law at the University of Oxford, and my search in that faculty is a search for a satisfactory legal anthropology. You know, we tend to do our lawmaking without asking the question, who are the proper subjects of the law? Which is why our law is so often unnuanced and comes to some grotesque answers. So I think we need to start with bottom-up questions like, what are we? Where are we? What sort of place is this? And go on from our tentative answers to those questions to the big things like, how can, in the light of that knowledge, we thrive best in this place, being the sort of animals that we are? And yes, I have a varied academic background. So I started life as a veterinarian, and I did various bits of research in veterinary medicine. So for example, I worked trying to devise the best tranquilizer cocktail to put into darts to knock out gazelles with in Saudi Arabia. I worked on the chemotaxis of leeches. I worked on the comparative anatomy of a Himalayan hispid called the Himalayan lagomorph called the hispid hare. And then I moved into the law. And what I was looking at mainly in my practice in the law were questions which related to what are we? Now, these are questions which are posed very acutely in the context of lots of medical law questions involving life and death. When does life start? When is it appropriate to say that life has ended? And so on. And I'm very fortunate to have had the chance to look from the relative leisure of the Oxford Ivory Tower at some of these questions, rather than being confounded and confused by the hurly-burly of practice at the bar, which is what I did for many years. Well, I think you've strayed pretty far from the Ivory Tower in this quest and strayed to places that very few people have gone, at least among the intellectual urban elite. <laughs> but in the book, Being a Human, you talk about the Paleolithic and the Neolithic, and then you fast forward over a couple thousand years to the Enlightenment period, beginning with, I guess, Descartes is sort of the paradigmatic figure who 
separates mind and matter, but you skipped over a couple thousand years. And it seems like it's within those thousand years that the kind of split that you're interested in analyzing happened, right? This split between, I guess, nomos and physis, right? I think it was an interview you did where you said something like, children don't make a distinction between how things work and what they mean. And presumably the folks in the Paleolithic and Neolithic didn't make that distinction. But we make that distinction all the time, right? We tend to keep separate our scientific mind and then all the rest of the non-scientific stuff. And I think part of what you're trying to do is bring them back together and say, maybe we should never have split them apart. But you know, that seemed to be like the origin of, I mean, Greek philosophy was really all about what is man? How do we understand man? And uh, what is the meaning of being a man? I think that's true of the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers. I think those big questions became lost from the golden age of Greek philosophy onwards. And I think that the tendency of Greek philosophy from Plato onwards was to try to represent these huge tectonic ontological questions in terms of propositions which were plainly too small to deal with them properly. And so I think I would put a lot of the blame for the later catastrophe, which I think is Cartesian dualism, the door of Plato and the move which the Athenian Academy made from the pre-Socratic roots. Yeah, I remember when I first read the pre-Socratics and I was astonished to see that they shared this idea that, I guess it was sort of an animistic perspective, that everything in the natural world had some kind of spirit in it, right? Some kind of animation or animating spirit. I mean, do you think that that is part of our folk psychology and that it's something that is suppressed through education? And can we recover it? I mean, it seems like part of what you were trying to do with your various adventures is recover a way of understanding the world that is, I guess, more natural, right? More inherent in how we look at it. You use this term, um, I think it was anamnesis. And anamnesis, I guess it's a very common term, but I'd never encountered it before. It's really all about some kind of recovery of a perspective. That's a platonic word. The big project is recovering, unforgetting all the things which we have lost sight of, lost knowledge of, lost the ability particularly to experience in the course of our journey of the last 45,000 years or so since we became behaviorally modern humans at the start of the Upper Paleolithic. But you ask, is this knowledge or this intuition of universal spirit, the universal ensoulment of things, part of our folk psychology? Absolutely. That's perhaps a rather unkind or pejorative way of putting it. I prefer to say it's a reflection of one of the most fundamental intuitions about the nature, not just of ourselves, but of the rest of the world, and therefore of the relationship which should exist between us and the rest of the world. If the world, as Aristotle and most people who followed him, thought the whole world and sold them that entails lots of things about the way that we should relate to ourselves and to the non-human world. And we wouldn't have got into such an environmental catastrophe as we're in if we had seen that there was a soul in a plant, even if it was a, a soul which was of a very different kind, or in Aristotle's language, had a much lower status than ours. But I mean, it seems like in order to see the rest of the world, the natural world, as being ensouled, you need a very unique human attribute, which is this theory of mind. And you know, you talk about theory of mind, at least a lot of scientists would say that that is a uniquely human attribute, right? So 
I mean, if theory of mind is uniquely human, then you're trying to recover something which is uniquely human. It's not trying to make us more like the animals. It's trying to kind of make us more fully human to sort of recover this natural theory of mind. I mean, you talk about how children will frequently role play animals. And I remember as a kid, I would animate stuffed animals all the time, right? And we kind of get rid of that or move away from that as we get older. And in less scientific cultures, it's the shaman who sort of act as ambassadors to kind of remind us of the permeability of this boundary. But there are no animal shamans, right? So, I mean, is this viewing of the world as being ensouled kind of a human attribute that is unique to us that we can cultivate? Well, I think certainly the attribute which we know as human theory of mind is a specifically human attribute, very probably. But that is a peculiar iteration of the general ability to relate to other things. It's the ability which allows me to look at you and pose very specific questions to myself about what you're thinking. And in many ways, that's a much less intimate way of relating to you than I might have if I were a child who relied not on construction of the words which you are uttering in order to work out what's going on in your mind, but relied instead on amorphous resonances, the fact that we share some sort of weird field between us, or on a more prosaic level, by picking up your nonverbal cues, or the smell of the pheromones which are pouring across the ether as you speak to me. Well, I doubt the pheromones are, are making it through this video conference. Yeah, well, certainly if we were sitting in the same room, they would be, wouldn't they? But what we sophisticated adults talk about as theory of mind is probably a rather degraded version of that which uh, less linguistically dependent beings use in order to relate to one another and to the rest of the world. So direct experience is what we should be after rather than a cognitivized set of conclusions about what another person is thinking. So theory of mind is, as I see it, a specifically adult human way of appreciating what, if we were non-adult humans, we would be able naturally to have. Well, I think somewhere you wrote that when you first decided you wanted to try to understand what it was like to, say, be an animal, be a beast, you started with book learning. And you said this is sort of the doing it backwards. Right? You, know, you, want, you want to start with a more immediate experience. And it actually made me think of folks like Bacon, right? I mean, they also said that if you want to understand the world, you have to kind of immerse yourself in it and go out into nature. I mean, that didn't seem in conflict with the scientific approach. It seemed like actually a more honest scientific approach than one that begins with theory. Absolutely. We cannot separate ourselves from any object which we are examining. That is a matter of fact, and it happens at all levels of scientific and philosophical inquiry. We know that on the quantum level, the action of fundamental particles is affected by the observer. The observed and the observer on that level are part of one unity. The whole business of observing is necessarily a two-way conversation. That's what relativity is all about. And it seems to me that exactly that principle applies at the level of a human looking at the bird that he's studying, or the human looking at the rock that he's studying as well. 
unless we enter into a conversation which allows both the observer and the observed to be changed, our perspective is going to be distorted by the fact that we have fallen prey to the delusion that we can be objective. Now, I think a lot of people would accuse you of anthropomorphism, right? I mean, that's sort of going back to this idea of theory of mind. I think most scientists would say that our extension of theory of mind to animals and inanimate objects, this is kind of a bug, not a feature, right? And they would say, look, you're being anthropomorphic by trying to understand other animals, right? And there's a barrier there that simply cannot be crossed. In the end of the book, you talk about an encounter you had <laughs> at Oxford somewhere, where I think that the scientists who met you, they thought you were a little bit nuts. Did you get that a lot, where people thought you were kind of nuts? I mean, very few scientists are going to go and spend time burying themselves underground <laughs> and eating worms and sniffing dirt and so forth. Yes. So lots of biologists in particular think that I'm nuts. And I would say, although of course I would say this, wouldn't I? But that's because they're locked into an old creaking superannuated paradigm. And I've often found that my biologist colleagues here and elsewhere tell a very different story once they leave the lab at five o'clock. They move out of the lab, they move out of their paradigm, and they're prepared to consider lots of things which are heresy during working hours. So I think that there's an increasing realization that anthropomorphism is not the dirty word that it has long been thought to be. So as Carlsefina, the American biologist puts it, anthropomorphism is a good first guess. It's a good first guess for a, a number of reasons. The obvious one is that we share all our evolutionary history with the non-human animals that we are trying to get alongside mentally. We share all our neurological hardware and software. So it'd be strange, much stranger than the contrary, if we could conclude absolutely nothing about what animals are feeling. And there are other reasons why anthropomorphism is probably a good first guess as well, and that is that consciousness of some sort, and this may be something that we can talk about in a bit more detail later, seems to me to be a fairly ubiquitous phenomenon in the world. So consciousness of some sort, affected, of course, by the matter which it inhabits, by the brain which mediates it or permits it in some way, is something which is possessed by me and by lots of other non-humans. And if the consciousness which we, and let's say a fox, both possess is in some sense the same stuff, it would be strange if there was no possibility of any conversation between us, any mutual understanding. So anthropomorphism, good first guess, probably appalling second guess, almost certainly a dreadful third guess, but it's a good place to start. So I want to backtrack to when you first decided that you were going to undertake the project that resulted in being a beast. And you made this distinction between yourself and, say, Jay Baker, who wrote the Peregrine book, which is a fantastic book, and I think you admire it. And you said that he was trying to sort of forget himself in a way. And I think a lot of people who go wild, right, go off into nature, they're trying to distance themselves in a way, right? They're often troubled. You did this for very different reasons, but still, how did people react, particularly when you said you were going to bring your son with you? How did that work out? What was the kind of feedback that you got when you initially proposed this idea? Well, lots of people said, as we've just discussed, anthropomorphic nonsense, 
the fact that I was taking my son with me was a problem for some people because there are lots of people who evidently think that it's better for children to sit slumped in front of the TV or looking moronically at their phones than doing what almost all human children have done for almost all of human history, which is to now wander through the wild using their sensory receptors. So as far as the involvement of children was concerned, I make no apology at all for that, that they had far more fun. I got the sense that he was better at it than you. He's far better at it. Yeah. I mean, human children are not bipeds until they're about two or three years old. So the eye and nose and ear level of most non-human mammals, they soak up sensation through the pores which they have on the ground. And going back to the conversation we were having earlier, they have forgotten far less about the way the world is and the sort of place the world is than we have. And so Tom, the son who came with me for lots of the Being a Beast trip, was my great research tool. He had another superb advantage over me, and that is that he has the great gift of dyslexia. So he doesn't chop the world up into self-referential and self-reverential gobbits of language, which bear very little relationship to the thing which it purports to describe. So if Tom looks at a tree, he sees a tree. If I look at a tree, I translate the visual images from that tree almost immediately into things which have nothing whatever to do with that tree. Remember physiological facts about trees or poems that I've previously read about trees. So I've never seen a tree because of this diabolical coalition between language and my cognition. Tom, because of this gift of dyslexia, is not ruled by that coalition. He uses language in much the same way, I think, as an upper Paleolithic hunter-gatherer. In other words, a normative human being that uses language, namely as a tool. He's not used by language. He's not manipulated by language in anything like the same way as Zion. So that's a very long-winded way of saying that trying to get properly alongside my son and see and smell and feel the forest in the way that Tom did was a shortcut to working out how a fox or a badger saw and smelt and perceived the forest. Because I imagine that foxes and badgers don't have cognitive and linguistic biases of the sort that I have. Well, I mean, whether you're trying to see the world through the eyes of another species or see it through the eyes of people from a remote culture, which is what the Paleolithic and Neolithic folks are, it's an act of imagination. It's an act of empathy in a way. Which one do you think is harder? I think most people would naturally think that it's harder to see the world through the eyes of a fox. But it seems like the Paleolithic and Neolithic folks, they had presumably at least as much cultural and cognitive baggage or frameworks as we do. It's just that they were probably very, very different. They weren't encountering the world the way an animal would encounter the world. They were encountering the world with a whole suite of symbolic meaning and a whole suite of narratives that have been handed down from generation to generation. Which one do you think is harder? Well, the preliminary comment is that I don't think that upper Paleolithic hunter-gatherers are outlandishly different from us. So we have spent almost all our evolutionary history as behaviorally modern humans, as hunter-gatherers. That's really what we are. If you rip off the suit and scratch the skin of a Goldman Sachs besuited director, you will find a hunter-gatherer immediately beneath. And since that's what we really are, I don't think it takes all that much to revert to type. 
But in answer directly to your question, of course, a badger is more different from me than you are from me. But also, you're a much more sophisticated creature than a badger is. You can lie to me. You can give me misleading cues. The contents of your head is much more interesting to me than the contents of a badger's head, but in some ways, more inaccessible. I can work out something of what a badger is feeling from my knowledge of its neurology and by extrapolations from its behavior. Those sorts of calculations are much more difficult in the case of a human, even though I am a human. Although otherness of all sorts, whether it's the otherness of Greg or the otherness of a badger, it is always pretty inaccessible. It seems to me that the whole business of the literary project is to explore how accessible or otherwise otherness is. And it's mighty difficult. The reason that I undertook this project, really, in Being a Beast, was not so that I could understand a Welsh wood as a badger would understand it, but because it would increase the strength of my empathy muscles. If I could understand even a tiny little bit about what something as different from me as a badger perceived of the world, perhaps I could have a meaningful conversation with my children and my best friends. Perhaps it would mean that I wasn't locked up forever in the echoing loneliness of my own head. Perhaps I could have a conversation which wasn't at cross-purposes, etc., etc., etc. So I recommend this project for anyone who doesn't want to feel always echoingly alone. Yeah, and a lot of people would say that if you want to cultivate your capacity to see otherness, they would say, you know, invest in literature, right? (laughs) Say, read novels, and that's how you can learn about the other. Is this a complementary way? I mean, for folks who are interested in understanding the other, is this sort of a complement to literature? Is this a project that you would encourage everyone to do? It's part of the same project of trying to get out of Charles Foster's head trying to see if it's possible to occupy the exhilarating worlds of others. And both literature and my perhaps bizarre project of zoological method acting are both attempts to do that. And the world inside the head of Greg is far more interesting to me than the world which is in the most distant cosmos that we can imagine. And anything which can shed light on what's going on there, whether it's cross-bearings from literature, whether it's the twitches of your lips as you're looking in out, it's all grist to the mill in this great project of understanding. And so, I mean, scientists, I mean, you discussed when you were training to be a vet, right, how you dissected animals and so forth. And there are plenty of behavioral ecologists that will go into the field and carefully note what the animals are doing. But I think the folks who are studying animals from those perspectives, they are maintaining this barrier, right? They're maintaining this distance and this remove, this analytic gap. Do you need to have that gap to be a good scientist? And then you flip on the empathy and the role play and then kind of flip it off so you can go back to being a, quote, scientist? Or do you think that all scientists need to blur those boundaries in order to really be good scientists. I don't like the expression blur the boundaries. To undertake properly the true business of science, that is of understanding what the world is like, we have to use all the resources available to us. And that involves not only the resources of scientific observation and statistical analysis and so on, but also the different sort of attention which are available to us. So the two hemispheres of the brain, 
this is Ian McGilchrist, generate different types of attention. The left brain is very good at narrow, focused attention on a particular point. It's the sort of attention which a pigeon which is trying to pick up with its beak a particular grain of corn needs to apply. But that sort of attention alone won't keep the pigeon alive for very long, because without a wider sort of attention, the sort of attention which is given by the right hemisphere, the grain of corn in front of the pigeon's beak won't be seen in the big context. And part of the context is that there's a fox waiting to jump on the pigeon from behind the bush. So we need both wide, holistic attention, which takes account of the relationship between individual things and the narrow, focused attention. Unless we bring those two together and bring them together in the relationship which they were originally intended to have, namely the left subservient to the right rather than the, the converse, we're not going to get an accurate picture of the way the world is. And it does seem to me that the business of science has become depressingly an almost entirely left brain activity in which things are cut up, wrenched apart from their context. And that's something the left brain loves to do. If you disable the right hemisphere, you see a world which is full of body parts, which don't relate to one another in the whole which they're meant to occupy. I think you used the term, you said we're all kind of colonialists of nature, right? You know, we're sort of wandering into nature, but our goal is to rule it, right? And, you know, we rule it without necessarily understanding even what it is that we're ruling. And control, of course, and ruling and manipulation are left hemispherical activities. The left brain governs the right hand, the grasper. And of course, the left brain also governs our language. The right brain doesn't have language, so it can't make the appeals which the left brain has. And so there are lots of neurological facts which, taken together, make it rather difficult to have the view of the whole world, which we're meant to have, and which reflects the reality which is out there. You talked about how at some point in your life you were an avid hunter, right, where you went and killed animals. I mean, hunter is also a conqueror of nature, but the hunter has a more intimate view of nature, presumably, particularly if the hunter has to kill, right, with a knife as opposed to a gun. Did that hunting experience in any way contribute to the later project? I mean, 99% of the folks in the UK and the US, right, they eat their processed meat comes wrapped in cellophane, right? They have very little idea of what goes on to kind of get the food to the table. I know that in England, there's this huge debate over hunting and banning of hunting and so forth. And the folks who are the hunters, they would argue that they are the ones that actually have a better understanding of nature than the urban folks who are lobbying against hunting. How did hunting play a role in your thinking around nature? It played a very important role. The first thing to say, though, is that looking back at those times, I'm now very ashamed that I was involved in the way that I was. And I don't recognize in me the, the sort of person who pulled the trigger on all those animals. But there is no doubt that the relationship between a thoughtful hunter and his prey is very different and far more intimate than the relationship between that same man and the bird that he's just looking at through binoculars. There is a peculiar, almost clairvoyant connection 
which lots of people have tried to describe. Whether that's a connection which is forged by the fact of death, I don't know, maybe it's an acknowledgement as I pull the trigger that sometime the universe is going to pull the trigger on me, and that therefore death is something which both that animal and I share, giving us a sort of bond which doesn't exist between a mere observer and the observed. So that was an important part of my biological education. On a more basic level, of course, it meant that I had to learn to crawl like a wolf. I learned what it was like to lie for many hours with um, the stream coming in through the top of my trousers and out the bottoms. It awakened my olfaction and my other senses, which normally go unnoticed. It switched me sensorily on in ways which I don't think would have otherwise happened. So lots of good bequests, but looking back, shameful. Although I got lots from it, I don't think I can remotely begin to justify the deaths of all those animals but as a result of the lessons that I learned from them. Now, I think in a way, you're kind of like a shaman, and you use this idea of the shaman in multiple places. But even in the societies that have shamans, I mean, not everybody's a shaman, right? There are certain people whose job it is to be the shaman. And what is their job exactly? Can the rest of the community derive some benefit from kind of having these folks who serve as ambassadors to this other world? I mean, do we all need to be shamans or can we kind of delegate this job, delegate this role to somebody else, kind of like we do with priests? I think we all, to some extent, because of our evolutionary heritage, have some shamanic capacity. That is a capacity to subtle between this plane of being and other planes of being. But that said, in all cultures that we know of, shamans are the exception rather than the rule. They typically live on the edge of the community physically. They're often separated from the community by traits of various sorts, whether those are psychological traits or physical traits. So shamans are often people who have some sort of physical disability. They've undergone terrifying ordeals. They have typically been metaphorically dismembered, and they have metaphorically died and been reborn in the process of acquiring the particular skills of regular shuttling between this world and others, or this plane and others. And when they go to those other worlds, whether those other worlds are perceived as being physically across the wall of the upper Paleolithic cave or in some other psychological level, they bring back good things for the clan. They bring back knowledge about where the caribou are going to be, knowledge of whether the rains are going to fail that year. So yes, they're very useful. So, I mean, should we have some kind of role like that? Would it make sense to have, say, at Exeter College or King's College or you know Templeton College, we got a designated shaman? I mean, we could create chairs of shaman science. I mean, is there a way that we can kind of import this role back into 21st century UK or America? I think that slowly and very tentatively, we are doing that, but we wouldn't use that sort of language in order to describe what we're doing. So there's an increased recognition of the ubiquity and importance of other states of consciousness, whether those are exotic out-of-body experiences in which you hover over your own body or near-death experiences, or just the particular perspective that you get from 
sitting cross-legged for 20 minutes in the morning and watching your own breath surging in and out of your body. It's acknowledged increasingly that these are part of normative human experience and therefore access to them, or at least acknowledgement of them, is an important part of human thriving. And of course, this is an argument for the rehabilitation of religion. The ultimate pierced shaman who died and came back again is Jesus. And there are shamanic elements in most of the other great religions too. But if we see religion in our traditional forms as ways of getting out of quotidian ways of being in order to access other modes of consciousness, other modes of being, we will be participating in the shamanic project. It's, it's interesting that although the, there's controversy about exactly how the neurological data are to be construed, we appear to be neurologically wired up to be able to exist in or perceive in some way or cope with in some way about 11 different dimensions. We normally operate on four, so three spatial dimensions and time. So maybe when we go into an out-of-body experience, such as I had when I dislocated my shoulder and was given gas and air and hovered over my own body, extremely common experience, or one when we go into some religious ecstatic experience in which we speak in tongues, maybe we're accessing level five. Maybe our beloved dead are waiting for us on level seven or eight. I don't know. But the general point is that we appear to be wired up for much more reality than we normally seem to be satisfied with. I think you used the phrase, you're describing yourself at one moment in your life as a lump of idling software in a box made of meat. <laughs> I think that's a pretty accurate description of, of big chunks of a, a lot of people's lives. And I think at one point you said that there is within the accountant or the barrister capacities that are simply going unused, right? Yeah. So one example to illustrate the fact that we are fearfully and wonderfully made is um, a chap called Jack Schwartz. And he insisted that he could see auras around everybody. Nonsense, said the scientific establishment. And then he was investigated by a physiologist called John Adams. And Adams found that Jack Schwartz could indeed see infrared radiation. That was interesting. What was even more interesting was that when John Adams tested himself, he found that he could too. So we seem to filter out lots of reality. Aldous Huxley famously talked about our brains as a reducing valve, reducing to a, a manageable dribble, this great influx of possible data. It seems to me that that's right, but there are ways of opening the reducing valve to some extent to allow more data to stream in without us going mad. And if we have more data, we will have a better epistemology. We'll, we will know more accurately what sort of place we're in and therefore how to inhabit that place more effectively. Well, we're all of us, aren't we, uncomfortable in this world. We're full of neuroses. We don't really feel completely at home here. And that's a strange thing. I suspect it's because we don't appreciate the sort of place that this really is. And just a little bit more bandwidth might reduce the amount of dissonance between what we intuit ourselves to be and what we really are, and reduce the dissonance between our perception of the world out there and the intuition that we have about the way that world is. And 
So I guess you're saying that there's sort of a spectrum and at one end there's a kind of alienation that you describe and at the other end there's madness, right? But there's a sweet spot in the middle and I think you would argue most of us are on the shy side and maybe could potentially risk going a little further of course, stopping short of madness in the direction of greater experience. Yeah, I've given the example already of mindfulness meditation. That doesn't open up most people to dangerous schizoid states, but it does bring with it benefits which are widely recognized as improving our ability to thrive. And slightly more extreme manipulations of one's mind may allow us to appropriate even more of the reality which is out there. Well, so there seem to be pockets of awareness of what you're describing, but if you were to kind of zoom out and look at kind of the trends that you see people following, I mean, it seems like the tendency to move away from these capacities is just accelerating, right? I mean, when we think about how people spend most of their time, I think we spend 95% of our time indoors and then we spend a big chunk of that time kind of staring at screens right so i mean is this just narrowing and narrowing and narrowing our experiential landscape to a point where most of these other sensory experiences are just going to atrophy yeah so we are in thrall to the left hemisphere there are various ways of fighting back one way is to throw away our screens another way is to read George Eliot, instead of reading a computer manual. Another way is mindfulness meditation, which should be compulsory in all schools. Mindfulness meditation is a way of allowing yourself to mean something when you use personal pronouns. So usually when I'm wandering around, what I think of as Charles Foster is in all sorts of places. There's a bit of him over there. There's a bit of him over there. That bit's thinking about the paper he's got to write tomorrow morning. That bit is thinking about whether his daughter is going to get another detention today. The business of mindfulness meditation is the business of bringing all those disparate parts of Charles Foster together in one place so that I can say, yes, that is me. And that seems to me to be a project which is a prerequisite of all meaningful conversation, certainly a prerequisite of all morality. I mean, how can I say to my children meaningfully, I love you. And if I've no idea what I means or where I is. So that process of collimating all the diaspora, bringing together this archipelago of islands, which normally constitute me into one place, is the essential attribute for any sort of sincere human utterance, any sort of meaningful human being. How can one talk about being unless you can point to the place where the being is happening. I mean, this is a profoundly humanistic project, right? I mean, you talk about understanding autonomy, understanding identity and authenticity, understanding otherness. These are generally what we think of as the domain of the humanities. Getting back to education, how should we think about restructuring education so as to cultivate our humanity in a more, I guess, authentic way? Right? How would we do this? Would this involve structure? Would it change in parenting, change in kind of primary education, change in university education, right? How would we do this? Yeah, well, we do have, don't we, a very systematic and bitter war on the humanities in the academy. This dangerous defunding of every discipline which can't be directly monetized. 
So engineers and accountants are promoted and the study of literature and the history of art are regarded as, in Margaret Thatcher's words, a luxury. In fact, those things which are described as luxuries are some of the best ways of understanding what it is to be a human being. And I think the real revolution which has to happen is not to denigrate engineers or engineering, but to say that an engineer is a human being before she is an engineer. And that reordering of priorities would, in a stroke, sort out lots of the imbalance which we see in modern educational policy. So, as far as parenting is concerned, we've got to be brutal about all the things which disable the operation of that right hemisphere. So, I try to be, although I fail, totalitarian with our children about screens. Lots of people are saying it, and it is so obviously true that we've got to throw away our screens that you become, well, I feel embarrassed about stating the blimmin' obvious. We've got to embark on that business of deciding where the eye is as the prerequisite of all education. You can't relate to literature in the way which is going to transform you unless, as we've been discussing, what the eye is which is going to respond tearfully or angrily to the piece of literature, which, if you use it properly, school you in the crucial art of relationship. We need to teach the principle that relationships are everything, not just human relationships, but relationships with the non-human world. We need to say that the relationship between things is the web and weave of the cosmos, and that anything which defeats that insight whether it's the atomism of modern sociology, which asserts that everyone is an island unto himself, or whether it's things which lock us up physically in our rooms or on our screens. We've got to say that those things strike at the very heart of the way that the universe is meant to be, and that radical measures are therefore needed to restore relationship to its central place, not only in our philosophical understanding of the world, but also in relation to our personal lives. And in terms of their relationship with nature, how could we foster a better relationship with the non-human world? Is there a way to do that with our children? Well, I think it's very easy. You just got to go out and be in it. I don't think there's any more philosophical an answer I can give them that. Relationship breeds an appetite for relationship. And if we go out into green, we will learn to love green. And we will learn that green is better than the grey of the breeze blocks from which our houses are made. So there also needs to be a part of the compulsory curriculum in which people just go out and lie in a field or climb a tree. If you have had a childhood which is marinated in greenness, not only are you far less likely to suffer from ADHD or depression, but you're also far less likely to become, when you are an adult, a major treasure of the natural world. Well, Charles, this has been fascinating. I think that your adventures right, in both of these books are fascinating to kind of enjoy remotely as you read the book. You know, you can really experience, I guess it would be um, vicariously, what you were doing. And in a way, reading it, is not quite the same thing as doing it, but it was inspiring enough to make me want to start doing it. So I think probably a bunch of people have read both these books and thought, 
that maybe they should spend some time trying to inhabit these different worlds and at least sharpen their awareness of these other types of experience. And hopefully, I think if you've done anything, you've inspired a bunch of scientists to maybe think that there isn't this trade-off between science and empathy, science and more direct experience, but rather if they want to be better scientists, then they have to really explore these other ways of experiencing the world. So, Charles, thanks so much for joining me. I look forward to reading your next book. Greg, I loved our conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.